days go by, a million little nights and days go by, and I don't mind. Parades go by, so many beautiful parades go by, leave me behind. Good morning and welcome to episode... 973 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, brought to you by the Play Index, baseballreference.com, and our Patreon supporters. I'm Sam Miller of ESPN, along with Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Hello, Ben. Hello. I have a question for you. Ask it. Did you see the crowd estimates, the crowd size estimates of the uh, Cubs victory rally? Yeah, what was it, 5 million? This is what they say. Yeah, the seventh largest gathering in human history, something like that. Well, they also say that. I think they actually uh, had it in a tie, which is <laughs> which tie. is great. They, they they couldn't get one more guy in there. It's a tie, Ben. It was a tie. It's exa- exactly five million for both the Cubs World Series celebration and World Youth Day, nineteen ninety five. Do you believe it? Do I believe five million? I mean, I was talking about that with my mom, I think, and she couldn't believe that there were actually five million people there because how many people live in Chicago? Well, the, I mean, obviously, I people it's... came from far and wide, and the Cubs have a big fan base yeah. outside of the city. But so. uh, let me just let me just interrupt you there for one thing because I uh, lived in the city. Well, I lived just south of San Francisco for for the uh, 2014 parade. And I happened to actually be up in Northern California for the 2010. And so I was 15, 20 minute train ride away from the 2014 one and like a, maybe an hour, five minute drive from the 2010 one and did not consider for a second going into it. It was, it was, I mean, you, you could not get into the city. Like the only person I know who made it there uh, lived along the route. Otherwise, it was just completely impossible to get in. So while Chicago metro area is much bigger, and while uh, yeah, it's like sure 10 million people, and sure there's Cubs fans from uh, you know probably from as far as Denver. I, I just don't think you're driving into Chicago to go to this rally. I, I just if it's anything like the ones that and you know San Francisco is a little bit of a different geography, but if it's anything like those, you it is it quickly becomes restrictive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I don't know. I didn't really watch video. I saw some pictures of what I'm looking like at a, a pic- lot of people. I'm looking but. at a picture that looks like it is every bit as crowded as Coachella 2002. Right. Yeah. They they looked like a big Stones concert or something. Yeah. Which is now you're talking about you know upwards of 110,000. Right. I mean, I don't know. I'm sure. So where are the other 4.89 million? <laughs> I don't know. We'll probably get angry emails from maybe every, Cubs fans who were there and maybe, counted personally. Right. But. Maybe every one of the people in this crowd is actually three children in a trench coat. <laughs> so then now we're talking about 330,000. But yeah. I, I don't believe... I, first of all, crowd crowd estimates are always ludicrous. That I'm not, I'm not saying that about this one. I'm still litigating this one. But uh-huh. like there was a great on the media segment maybe four or five years ago about how these crowd estimates are are created or how they come up with them and it's just completely they're they're like they're completely faked uh-huh. um and <laughs> so you you should take all of these with uh as little seriousness as you possibly can 
Yeah. Well, but this yeah, story ahead. says that it beat out the three and a half million people who went to Rod Stewart's 1994 <laughs> concert in Rio. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Yeah. 1994 Rod Stewart concert, <laughs> three and a half million people. At least in that case, theoretically, someone might have been collecting tickets. Like if there were tickets collected, that is the maybe a way I would take an estimate like this seriously. Uh-huh. Um, but otherwise, the other thing is like the number one is a pilgrimage in India. I don't know anything about this pilgrimage in India, so um, maybe maybe there's a perfectly reasonable explanation. But thirty million to this pilgrimage in India in 2013, and then it drops down to to um, a festival in Iraq in, that had 17 million. And I'm just guessing that this pilgrimage in India is probably an annual thing. How come it spiked to 30 million? And it's not, there's not another, there's not another pilgrimage in India that is in the top 11, like with even, like it all, so I don't, I'm skeptical, but I am very skeptical of this. I did not see any photographs of this parade that convinced me that there were on the order of eight times what they had in San Francisco uh, or Kansas City. And uh, while I think that they have a lot to be proud of with this parade, and it wouldn't surprise me at all if it was the biggest World Series parade in history uh, and the biggest World Series rally in history. It would not surprise me at all, uh, but I would not spread Fox 32 Chicago's report <laughs> on Facebook. I, I believe it is as uh, probably ge- my guess is that this page was generated by teenagers in Macedonia to get clicks. <laughs> Well, if you were there and you believe otherwise and you have some evidence to support that, email us and let us know why you think it was actually that many people. I love that this, by the way, the, the, this, the write-up of it, of this Fox 32 news piece is so great because the second paragraph is, the Cubs celebration crowd even beat out the 3.5 million people who went to Rod Stewart's 1994 concert in Rio, as though everybody who clicked on this was like, can't be more than Rod Stewart in Rio in 94, though. <laughs> yeah. like, like, you're scanning quickly to, like, you control F Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> that pilgrimage is every 12 years, by the way, if so that changes your mind. It, it, well, I'm glad you said that because, right, so that means that there was one in 2001. And I have a hard time thinking that they went a 1,000% decade over decade on this. So to me, this is an incomplete, uh, this speaks to an incomplete list anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just don't, I don't, no way. (laughs) No way. No chance. It's not 5 million people. Get out of here. Definitely need more, more information. (laughs) Citation needed. All right. I feel like my topic might be semi time consuming. So I'm going to end my banter there. You got anything? No, we can proceed. All right. Uh, So I wrote a piece for ESPN that came out Friday about what we're still staying alive for now. Um, basically, mm-hmm. the premise was that uh, there's all these uh, old people in Chicago uh, who were uh, just hanging on to see the Cubs win the World Series, uh, and um, there were there were you know there while we were growing up there were a few well there were at least two stories like that, uh, the Cubs and the Red Sox, where you you heard about people who's you know j- their dad just wanted to make to see the Red Sox win the World Series. Uh, maybe even the White Sox as well. And so the question was, is there anything left that baseball can offer us in our lifetimes that would be uh, worth putting off open heart surgery to see uh, or that would, you know, give us an incentive to stay alive uh, to see? Um, So I I had a few of these things, things that we uh, have never seen in our lifetimes, you and me and most people have never seen in our lifetimes and and it seemed like they probably are... uh, 
you know, in a couple of cases are maybe not necessarily things that are likely to happen anytime soon. And that if they did happen, in some cases, if they did happen, they might not even be that exciting. But, you know, a lifetime's a long time. If you're on a 50 or 60 year time timeline, uh, you know, for instance, the Indians winning the World Series next year would not really be worth me staying alive for. I don't, I don't care that much. But, uh, you know, 20 or 30 years of of, of of this more, maybe we have a more romantic view of the Indians, for instance, or whatever they're called by then, because they will probably not be called the Indians in 30 years, that's my <laughs> no. guess. Um, so anyway, so that was the premise, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But I want to flip that around and ask not what might happen that we've never seen before in our lifetimes that would be fun, but what did happen in 2016 that uh, we saw for the last time. And okay. so, so these can be things that maybe we saw only once, or they can be things that we saw every week for the last 30 years, but uh, have been either slowly phased out of the game or are going to be abruptly phased out of the game or whatever. For one, for whatever reason, these are things that we saw in 2016, uh, but we think that in the next 50 years, that's our timeline here, 50 years, we will not see again. All right. All right. So I'm going to uh, to ask you to tell me all of those things. <laughs> Great. <laughs> That's the whole episode, Ben. So I hope you brought some. <laughs> hope you can think of some. That's not true. I'm not. I actually, I asked right before we came on, I asked, uh, I put this out on Twitter, got some very good responses. I'm going to go over those uh, and get your feeling on whether you think that they are in fact that um, okay. and whether they qualify. But before I do that, I want to just have 20, you know, 12, 12 to 20 seconds of silence while you ponder this and if uh, to see if you think of anything. Hmm. Last Bartolo Colon home run. Yeah. All right. Time's up. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so the request that I put out was. What did we see in baseball this year, either for the first time or the millionth, that you think we'll never see again? The broader, the better. So I've faved, I've liked a bunch of these, and I'll go through some of them, and uh, we can talk about them. All right, so runners regularly called out on instant replay reviews that show the runner came off the bag for a microsecond. This has been something that Rob Manfred, the commissioner of Major League Baseball, I believe has uh, talked about. Uh, how this is something that they'll look at. It doesn't necessarily seem like there's a huge amount of urgency coming out of Major League Baseball, but uh, there's a any time a runner is called out now, uh, it seems like uh, we get announcers talking about it for a couple of minutes. It seems broadly unpopular among the announcer class. Uh, it is, more, I would say, more controversial or more, I guess, more evenly split among people that I follow. But there is, uh, there are a lot of people who, like me, consider it to be. Uh, not an addition to the game, not a not something that supplements the game in in any particular way, uh, and that uh, it is um, uh, it is something that would be better off resolved. Uh, so uh, I believe that they will take a look at this. 
uh, in the offseason. Do you believe that there will be settled legislation that uh, gets around this problem and makes it so that runners are not called off for nanosecond diversions from the bag? I think it's doable. So I think it probably will be done. Will be done this offseason. I'm not positive. I think it probably would have helped if there had been some really pivotal play in this postseason that had swung a game one way or the other based on that kind of call. That might have given people the impetus to do something about it the way that Buster Posey's injury or the Chase Utley slide did. I don't know whether we've quite had the equivalent of that, although obviously it's something that happens fairly often. So if I had to guess, I'd say we haven't quite seen the end of it yet, but we will. I think that they will do something this year. I think it's Uh done. I think it's done. Okay. I hope so. Yeah. I, okay. Uh, Nonchalant attitude about an accused domestic violator, domestic violence violator, winning World Series games. Do you think that we've, I think we've obviously seen across all sports, including in baseball, a much more attempt to take seriously uh, this crime uh, and to have uh, leagues really put measures in place to take it seriously, to punish players. And yet, I also feel like to some degree uh, the the league's reaction to these accusations still lags behind the public's reaction to it, particularly the public that you and I interact most with, um, other writers and so on. So it does seem to me that there is coming, well, that there is likely coming a point in the future where it becomes too toxic. And I don't exactly know what they'll do to uh, to fix that because it it does seem like a lifetime ban for a uh, first time violator is probably not going to be broadly accepted uh, and is probably probably not fair. Uh, but do you think that there is are we at a, a sort of a tipping point where the momentum will shift heavily and something like Araldis Chapman being in position to save the final game of the World Series um, and so on will be prevented by Major League Baseball rules or culture or team team culture? I don't think so. I think if the same thing happened next year, the, it might play out the same way. I mean, we saw the suspension and that was the first violation or the, the first time it was prosecuted under that rule or under the commissioner's authority to do something about it. And Everyone said, oh, he's going to do something really harsh and he's going to set down a precedent. And I don't know, it was harsh compared to the usual suspensions we see for throwing a fastball at someone's head or something, but it could have been harsher and it wasn't because there were free agency implications there and maybe the union would have pushed back if it had been any more than it was. And so there were various reasons why it wasn't more severe. And as it turned out, he got traded for by the best team in baseball and there was a lot of grumbling and disapproval and frowns and yet he pitched for them down the stretch and he pitched for them in the playoffs and he pitched for them in game seven of the world series and we all thought it was the greatest game we'd ever seen and the cubs won the world series and uh five million people showed up to the parade (laughs) so i don't think there's enough there to say that that's the end, that's it, and now it will never be allowed to happen again because the Cubs just did it, and what were the ramifications for them, really? Not much. 
Yeah, a lot of talk and uh, on the internet, and it's I think uh, it's easy to overestimate what percentage of baseball fans um, are on our timelines. Uh, and my guess is that the average baseball fan, sadly, uh, is. I mean, Jose Reyes got a standing ovation in his first at bat for the Mets, right? Oh so. my gosh, did he really? Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> I the I think the the sad thing about this, the sad the sad truth is that I think that without very visible victims, there's uh, it's hard to get a lot of people to pay attention to uh-huh. to how horrific this behavior is, this crime is. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's a lot of reasons that victims don't want to be that visible. And mm-hmm. I don't I don't exactly uh, know how to convince large swaths of the sports viewing public how how much scorn they should be heaping on these players but i don't think that we're we're in a significantly different place than we were one year ago mm-hmm. i also don't think that it's quite i don't know i'm not sure that i would consider it a nonchalant attitude uh this year as the question or as the suggestion assumes it's not quite mm-hmm. nonchalant i think that's probably the wrong adjective it's not nearly chalant enough though yeah, it's. I mean, it's definitely a different place from where we were two years ago when there was no policy and no suspensions. So, I mean, there has been real movement, but yeah, I don't see anything very drastic happening immediately. All right, Vin Scully. Um, we are obviously not going to see Vin Scully again in a baseball game, uh, calling a baseball game. But do you think in the next 50 years there will be any figure in baseball who approaches Vin Scully's uh, fame and universal belovedness, uh, who will age into a sort of uh, senior role in the game, a historical patriarchal role, whatever, in the game that will be so universally uh, revered and admired uh, that we have any any retirement in baseball that can rival Vin Scully's in the next 50 years. What do you think people would have said about Vin Scully's chances of being that guy 50 years ago. 50 I mean, he years, was, 50 years he was, was what, 60, 66? So yeah. Vin was a, I read, you know, I read a lot about Vin for mm-hmm. one of the episodes that we did. Yeah. Uh, and by 66, Vin was considered a, a star uh, yeah. and he was widely admired. But I don't think that he was considered the conscience of the game in any significant way mm-hmm. uh, as he is, you know, as he as he is now. He was a very good young broadcaster in a you know in a in an emerging medium uh, that um, was popular and that he was extremely well suited for. I think he was considered especially entertaining, especially adept at using every inch of that medium for the benefit of the consumer, uh, and he was associated with uh, many of the best parts of baseball. However, I. I think that even if he, I, I, I'm, I'm sort of estimating here, but I don't think that you would have bet on him making, you know, spending another 50 years in the game. And what, in what, at what, how long did Vin have to go? You wouldn't uh, have to, bet on to, him living this long, <laughs> let so, alone being a great broadcaster the whole time. So what's the earliest Vin could have retired to go down, down not just as a Hall of Fame broadcaster, but as, you know, almost... Almost a you know a secular deity. Like I mean, I think of Vin Scully as, as and Mister Rogers as being like sort of tandems from a from a generation, mm-hmm. uh, and they are just 
they are so elevated above all other human beings in how universally they are considered good for humanity. And they, I don't know at what point Vin could have retired and had that locked down. Yeah. I want to say, based on my awareness of Vin Scully, that it would have been around the turn of the century, maybe a little bit earlier. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's hard for me to say. I wasn't really reading coverage of Vin Scully at that time, and I haven't really gone back to look, I, as you did in your recent article when you, in the article we're talking about, I guess, where you look to see when the Cubs drought became a curse and when it attained all of its sort of mythology. And Oh, you it read was, it. <laughs> yeah. And it was pretty <laughs> I'm so recent. touched. It was, a, came out on a Friday afternoon. I wasn't sure if you'd read it. <laughs> I did. And it was uh, what you found like in the late nineties was when, or, or sometime between yeah, like, mid eighties and the late nineties. Sometime, when... Yeah. Sometime between 84 and 97 is sort of when it was confirmed. And I, I think that it was really, it was, it was in the years right after 84 is when I think that the notion of it as a curse as something that actually defined a Cubs fan's life in a negative way is when it really started to uh, to catch on. I don't think it was that way before that. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Once Vin had gotten to fifty years, maybe that maybe that would have done it. Mm-hmm. So so around that time. Okay. Yeah. So that anyway. To, yeah. To answer the question, then. Yeah. So I'm trying to think of what besides a broadcaster, what kind of person could attain that and I guess it could be I don't know like you know it couldn't be like Theo Epstein or someone who's like very revered and respected but I don't know that he's I I don't know that he could be beloved by all of the fans in Major League Baseball that way because I I don't know maybe if he became commissioner or something and yeah commissioner I think in the in a previous generation the commissioner would be a position where that could happen but I don't think it can anymore I think it yeah I think that the too many people are pro player now, and a commissioner is too closely associated with the owner's business interests that I don't even think that we're going to have a hero commissioner really again. Yeah. Uh, in so, the same way that we might have. Uh, however, you say that he can't otherwise because what? He only represents one team, but David Ortiz and Mariano Rivera, different things, players, but they represented one team and were universally beloved. Yeah, but you don't get to appreciate Epstein's work the way that you do those guys I, I mean you don't well he'll write him. a book he'll write a book it's a it's a you know it'll be a huge 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 bestseller uh-huh yeah if he writes a, a Vec is in rec right. style book that's really great then yeah I mean maybe and if he he'd have to do something very visible so I don't know what that would be if he became an owner and was like a lovable just I don't know out of the box owner or something maybe uh, maybe there's a owner. way but Owner's yeah. an interesting route. Yeah, like if he became an eccentric owner or like an outspoken owner, there aren't as many of those anymore because there are a lot of corporate-owned teams, and so you don't have that kind of you know family-owned team, and you gets passed down generations, and yeah, you know there are all these characters involved. It's it's just much more business-like now. So what if maybe, tw- what if twenty you know twenty-two years from now? He goes to Cleveland and in his third year there, there wins a World Series. And so, so he, I mean, the Red Sox, the Cubs, and, and I'm assuming now that in 22 years, the Indian, breaking the Indians drought is also considered mm-hmm. a, you know, a heartwarming achievement that all of America gets behind. 
Yeah, I don't know. Do you think he's beloved now? He's certainly respected, but is he beloved? I like. I feel like he's just going on a bender after this World Series is, <laughs> is a, a good thing for him, making him more lovable. But uh, I don't know. I don't know if he's widely lovable enough. And I don't know if a broadcaster could do it because there are no one-man booths, so... I don't know if you can stand out as much when you're working with a two or three man team or three person team. Let me give you one that many people will roll their eyes at. But what about, and again, we're on a crazy timeline here. What about if Grant Brisby just keeps doing this for 40 years? <laughs> and and he is Roger, you know, he is Roger Angel for this generation, this medium. Or he is, you know, he's Vin Scully. Like Grant Brisby is not only incredibly funny, incredibly talented, but also pretty much universally liked. He He's not offensive. He is a genuinely good and decent human being. And I think that that radiates off of him. I mean, don't you, don't, doesn't everybody get the sense that Grant is just a good person? Sure. Yeah. And so if Grant is doing this for 40 more years and just keeps getting better and reaches some sort of like legendary sad. I mean, the thing about Angel is that he was writing for a very, you know, a relatively small, specific niche, non-baseball audience. He was the greatest of all time. But how many people do you even like really know who know who he is? Pretty, yeah, well, pretty small. Right. That's what I was going to say is that you, you mentioned Angel and he's the greatest and Everyone who knows him acknowledges that he's the greatest, but but yeah, I mean, the, the average baseball fan, I don't think, knows who Roger Angel is, so. But, like, let's say that, let's say eight years from now, newspapers are gone, everything's digital, and the New York Times hires Grant, and Grant is the New York Times baseball writer for this medium for 30 years after that. Is it conceivable? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> It's possible. Grant wouldn't have been my number one pick, but <laughs> now that you mentioned it, sure. Uh, I don't know. I'm yeah, just I mean, trying to think of a writer, and I don't know what other well, what no, other writer I could pick really... a different writer over him. But I don't know that I would pick a writer. But uh, yeah, like someone like Henry Chadwick or something, who was like you know a writer, but also a historian and a statistician, and very influential and. And he edited magazines and baseball guides forever, and he was known as, like, the father of baseball. But that was, you know, he died in 1908, and I'm not sure that a writer could attain the same prominence now just because no one needs a writer to tell them what happened in the game. They can all see the game. So I'm not sure that the bond between the fan and the writer is quite the same as it was when you were consuming baseball through the writer's words so maybe but eh. and i don't know and like we couldn't have like a a connie mack style manager who just manages for 50 well, years I, I so i was wondering if joe madden i mean joe madden is quirky he's successful he's uh, did i mention he's quirky uh <laughs> yeah. he, he got started late and yeah. there's already a little bit of backlash growing. Yeah. I don't even know if Joe Madden's well-liked now, is he? I mean, <laughs> sabermetric people kind of like him, but, uh, you know, yeah. does, like, the typical fan care about Joe Madden? I yeah, don't think maybe so. not. Yeah. Yeah. 
uh, I mostly just wanted to change the subject so that all the people out there whose eyes rolled so far up into their heads for so long that now they can no longer breathe uh, can unroll them. Uh, all right. Jacoby Ellsbury reaching on catcher's interference 12 times, which is a record. Yeah. The single season record was eight. Before that, I was, it was weird. I saw a thing. I was I was looking for the exact number because I saw like, some article that had him at like, you know, nine in July or whatever. And I was looking for the final say. And I found somebody, a, a writer say, so is this a skill? I'd say no. And that really? seems, un- how do you, how do you <laughs> say that? How could you possibly say that? Like, there are like, there are like 12 catchers interferences across Major League Baseball in a decade. Yeah. And this dude just decides that he's going to do it and he does it. That's like the, it's the most, it might be the clearest. I might believe that that is a more stable or stable. What's, what word am I looking for? I believe that that is a skill more than I believe that uh, Andrelton Simmons defense at shortstop is a skill. (laughs) Uh So, uh, so yeah, it's a skill. The question is a, whether this is a skill that is so easily picked up that if one wants to, throw tradition in the wind and go for it uh he can simply do it and top ellsbury mm-hmm. Two, whether ellsbury himself is getting simply better at this and can get 13 next year uh, yeah. he's cl- getting close to the all-time career record so he might aspire to it and three is whether if the answer is yes to one or two whether major league baseball would allow it or whether it would yeah. just be seen as oh well they finally found this little glitch in the matrix we got to seal it off and nobody mm-hmm. can ever do it again because it is not good for baseball to have <laughs> it easy to do this. It's not no. how anybody intended the batter-pitcher matchup to be resolved on the regular. So clearly, yeah. if, if somebody was exploiting this as much as Ellsbury does regularly or if multiple players were, I think it would be a quick lockdown in baseball. Yeah. Yeah, I think maybe Ellsbury is almost grandfathered in. Yeah. He's just this weird outlier who yeah. does this thing and it's like whatever, Andy Pettit's pickoff move or someone getting hit by tons of pitches or whatever it is. This is just his his one weird trick that he uses to get on base. But if someone were to copy it and you could envision everyone starting to do this, then yeah, I think there would probably be a rule change that would prevent it. So I think your only real hope is that Ellsbury does it again, and he'd have to stay healthy again to do it, which is not something he does with that much regularity. And how many did he have like the year before? Well, well the year he, before he was hurt, but he had he had uh, he had eleven in his career to date, which I think was the active record. I think there are like two guys, as I recall, two two guys in like the last like decade or fifteen years who have who have done this. And I forget who the other one was. It was a Ray, somebody on the Rays and Ellsbury. So he, he did it more than anybody else, but it was 11 in his career, I think, or maybe it was 14 in his career. It was some, it was, it was low teens at most in his career. So he got way, way better at it yeah. this year. Uh-huh. Yeah. He, 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 he beat the, the previous single season record by 50%. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, I don't know. I, I wouldn't bet against him doing that again now that he has picked up this skill. So. Are you surprised nobody throws baseballs at his face? This seems like <laughs> this seems like the place for unwritten rules to take care of it. Yeah, it does. I'm surprised. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we'll just do two more. This one, uh, well, the this was suggested a starter going over 100 pitches, which I think is a joke. But I'm going to rephrase it. 
a starter going over 130. Uh, Matt Moore threw 133 pitches uh, in uh, a start in August for the Giants. He was the only player to go over 125 all year, which Mm. uh, is kind of an amazing fact that snuck under the radar, I think. Before Matt Moore threw the 133 pitch outing, Chichi Gonzalez had 124 and that was it in four and two thirds. That's one of my favorite things that until, <laughs> until then the single start max for the season was a 22 year old prospect in a four and two thirds inning outing, which is like straight out of 1996. Yeah. Uh, but uh, nobody else threw 125 except for more who threw 133. I'm not setting the limit at 125 cause I'm sure someone will, but will anybody ever throw 130 in a non no hit bid again and just to put this in perspective uh, matt moore's 133 is the most tied for the most in the last five years in a non no hitter i think more i guess it was a no hit bid for more i think they he gave up a hit and they pulled him right yeah so mm-hmm. it was a no hit bid he did not get a no hitter the three pit the three outings that were more pitches in the previous five years were Completed no hitters, but then Cole Hamels went 133 and Edinson Volquez went 133 in 2014 and 2012. Uh, but this is the first year ever that there was nobody who went 130 in a non no hit bid. It was the fewest 130 plus starts in history. Do you think 130 is now a hard cap? And uh, do you think we'll see another? I guess it's two questions. Do you think we'll ever see a 130 again? And do you think we'll uh, ever see a 130 in a non no hitter? Hmm. Yeah, the latter seems pretty unlikely now. For a while there, the starters were not really losing a share of their innings. Like relievers were pitching fewer and fewer innings per per appearance, but there were just more relief appearances, more guys in the bullpen, and starters were not really pitching fewer innings as a group, but this year they did by quite a bit, I think, and the percentage of innings pitched by relievers was the highest ever and then got even higher in the postseason and in the World Series, what, everyone was pulled without throwing a pitch in the seventh or something like that, all the starters. So I think it's definitely moving in that direction. I I wouldn't really rule out it eventually at some point, maybe decades down the road, coming back in the other direction and everyone figuring out how to keep pitchers healthy enough for them to throw deep into games or something. Mm-hmm. So that could certainly happen. But yeah, in, in 50 the, years, you've really got to yeah, leave open the cyborg possibilities. Yeah, right. But in the short term, unless there's like a major health breakthrough, I'd say probably not for the no non-no-hitter and probably still for the no-hitter, but it's got to be a dying breed. I will bet you a dollar right now that somebody goes 130 next next year. In a non-no-hit attempt? In a non-no-hit attempt, yeah. All right. All right. You're on. Good. Uh, all right. Last one is your best reliever not pitching in an elimination game. We talked about this a few days ago about whether, you, uh, whether we think that the Zach Britton debacle is the last such debacle. Uh, how convinced are you? We were both optimistic that it is, but how convinced are you? Yeah, I've I've been convinced of that before when it actually happened and we did the podcast about it. We talked about how there have been these other glaring examples of it with Mike Matheny and we thought, how could anyone possibly keep doing this? And then it happens again. You should link to the month. You should link to the Matheny episode because I had totally forgotten about that. 
And uh, <laughs> yes. I was reminded of it after Britain. And that yeah. might, that's one of, that might be my favorite moment of you in podcast history, in <laughs> our podcast history. I think I have episodes I like more, but I don't <laughs> think I have episodes where I just liked listening to, to you more than that. It was an amazing episode yeah. moment. Yeah. It was an amazing moment. <laughs> Yeah, so will it happen? So it didn't happen again in the postseason, really, right? Like, well, there's not that, that, that the many only... elimination games. So. No, no, but but even like a moment when yeah, an important game, even it didn't really happen. So I don't know. The backlash was so resounding to that that I would think all the managers were paying some attention to that, and I know all the playoff managers were asked about it because it was in the transcripts of their press conferences the next day, and they all sort of expressed sympathy for Showalter, but maybe they were also thinking, I won't do that (laughs) if I get in that spot again. So I'll say, yeah, there won't be one that is that bad. At least it's a little different because it's Britain, and he was like the most effective relief pitcher all year so that made it even more glaring and the fact that it was Baldo Jimenez coming in so could there be a time when a less effective closer is not used and a more effective middle reliever is used yeah maybe something like that but something that just obviously crazy I don't know I don't think so it took you a long time (laughs) yeah (laughs) all right that's all that's all I want to do all right so we will end there. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five listeners who have already done so, Adam Mayel, Corey Lack, Gene, Troy Clowder, and Dominic Ronzani. Thank you. You can buy our book, The Only Rules It Has to Work, our wild experiment building a new kind of baseball team. Go to theonlyrulesithastowork.com for more information. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild, and you can rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription to the Play Index at BaseballReference.com using the coupon code BP. If you're looking for something else to listen to, I have a new episode of the Ringer MLB show up with Michael Bauman. We talked a bit about the playoffs, and then we talked to Tim Dirks of MLB Trade Rumors and did a pretty comprehensive off-season preview. Talked about the market, CBA, etc. You can contact me and Sam at podcast at BaseballPerspectives.com or by messaging us through Patreon, and we will be back later this week. 